Hope y'all are doing well. Um, we are in our <clears throat> sermon series called The Journey. We are preaching through the entire, kind of reading through the entire book of the Bible. And as we've been reading through the entire book together this whole year, uh, each, each month, out of four different readings, we pick one and we, we study through it. And this particular month, we're studying through John. And so uh, as we're reading through it, um, we are at the end of John. So uh, we're going to be studying through for this month, John 14 through 21. And I know you're thinking, that, that sounds like it's the end of John, not the beginning. And Christmas is supposed to be at the beginning of the Gospels and not the end. So basically what we're doing this week, or this, this month, is having a Christmas series with the Easter message. Um, so I, uh, I'm excited about that. <laughs> the, uh, as you saw in the video, each week we're talking about why Jesus was sent. And in the end of John, there's lots of times where he says, Jesus was sent, he was sent, he was sent, he was sent. And that is the message of, of Christmas, is that Christ um, was sent to us by his Father. And so over these next four weeks, last week we looked at one, uh, we'll see what were some of the reasons why he was sent. Last week we saw that Jesus was sent so that we, who are believers, could receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this particular time, this week, we're going to see another reason why Jesus was sent. And this, this text, uh, if you look at John chapter 15 as we're going through the end, um, I'm actually going to spend just a moment in John chapter 15, and then we're going to switch over to John 3, and our primary time will be in John 3. But if you, if you look, uh, the idea has come from John 15. It says at John 15 verse 21, but all these things they will do on account of of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus is speaking of people that are unbelievers that do not like him and he's saying they're going to do these things that unbelievers do because they don't know him who sent me. In other words, they don't know God the Father who's the one that sent him, Jesus Christ. And then he says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that they, they have no excuse for sin, but because, so it basically, because Christ was sent, by the Father, these people who are going to rebel against him have had their sin revealed to them, have had their sin exposed to them, and that would not have happened had he not come. So that's the idea of where we're starting. I'm going to go to another text to, to show you, uh, in I guess more full fashion, in John chapter 3. So I'm going to pray, and then you can go ahead, and if you want to, switch over to John chapter 3. That's where we'll be, uh, but um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for <clears throat> your word that you've given to us. We pray that as we look at it, uh, this simple idea that Jesus was sent to reveal to us that we are sinners, and not only reveal to us to our sinner, that we are sinners, but also um, show us that you were willing to die for us. You didn't just reveal our sinfulness to us, and that's all. But more so, God, as you revealed your sin, our sinfulness to us, your love and mercy overflowed that you were willing to die for us because of our sin. And so I pray that that message would be clear this morning as we look at your text. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know it doesn't necessarily feel like Christmas, being that it's like 75 degrees outside. Um, if it was up to me, this would be how Christmas would be, winter would be every year. That's why I live down here. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't know why you wouldn't want to live down here with this weather. It's awesome. But has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So um, if you have a Bible, look at John chapter 3, verse 16. And I know you're very familiar with John three sixteen. If you're at football, they always hold it up, John 3, colon 16, and they always see it. it by the way, 
non-Christians don't usually know what that means uh, anymore. But here we are. We're going to start at John chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to go down to 21. But before we do that, you need to kind of see what's happening. So look at John chapter 3, starting at verse 1 through 15, and you'll see here, this is a story about a man named Nicodemus that comes to Jesus at night. Uh, he was he was a Pharisee, and, and he was well-known, and so he, he probably came at nighttime because he didn't want to be seen talking to Jesus at nighttime. And they're having conversations about what it means to be born again. Uh, you can see uh, in verse 2, he came to him, and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is truly with him. Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I know you've probably been in church for a while and you've heard this idea, this idea of being born again, but put yourself right there in that particular time where the phrase born again has never been used before and somebody tells you, you need to be born again. And so he's thinking, uh, can't do that. No one's ever done that before. Uh, and so Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Every one of us would have said the same thing. Um, but Jesus is obviously not talking about physical being born, physically being born again, but spiritually. Um, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of, of, of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So there's people that are born for the first time physically, but then there's also people that are born for the second time spiritually. And then he says, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind, in the Greek, by the way, wind is the same word as spirit. So ruah, you're, you're, that's actually Hebrew. This is panuma. So you see uh, spirit slash wind, and it's being used in the same way. So if you were to walk outside and the wind's blowing and you're trying to figure out, like, where's it coming from, you wouldn't have any idea. You'd just see its effects. You'd see the trees shaking. You're saying, okay, the wind's blowing. I can't see it, but I know it's blowing because I see its effects. And it's the same way. The spirit's moving. I can't see it, but I see its effects. The effects are people are getting saved. People are spiritually being born again. Um, in the same way, that's what Jesus is going to say. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not where, where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born with the Spirit. You see the effects of the movement of the Spirit whenever he moves in the lives of people. Um, Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus, I mean, you're a teacher. You're supposed to understand this. How... Are you not a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you not believe, how can you believe heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from, um, from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's talking about himself, obviously, and then he references Moses here. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So here he's referencing the death that he would have one day where he would be lifted up on the cross. And as Moses was, uh, it says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent, uh, which was the curse at the time, but it ended up saving their lives. As long as it was up, they were, they were being saved. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as that's happening, they would be saved. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we see here in verse 15 that as when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. And that's all predicated on the fact that if the spirit blows, when the, when the panuma comes and blows, you see its effects. Therefore, people are getting saved by believing in Jesus who will be lifted up. Now, that's all important for us to kind of see as we're, as we're seeing this because verse 16 still is carrying in that same idea, but it's a little bit of a transition. Uh, remember, this book was written 
probably, John wrote this book probably 50 years after the death, bell, and resurrection of Jesus. So 50 years later, he's looking back. And so he has the right, as he's writing, to kind of switch a little bit. And so in verse 16, John, he's quoting Jesus, but he switches in verse 16 to not just being in the story with Nicodemus, but making it a little bit more lofty. And then he just starts kind of reflecting on some things that Jesus would say. And so verse 16 has this little shift where he's, John is reflecting back 50 years after this had happened. And we've already talked about last week, how can John do that? How can John remember things that were said 50 years ago? If you remember, we saw that in John chapter 14, verse 26, where Jesus looks at him and promises him that I'm going to teach you all things after my death, and I'm going to bring to your remembrance all the things that I've said to you. An immediate promise right there to his disciples for this very purpose. So that they could write scripture. But anyway, back here. So um, John's going to take himself kind of a loftier place in quoting Jesus here in verse 16. And these are reflections. These are reflections on what it means to be saved. So as we're going into verse 16 through 21, it's, it's absolutely on the heels of the story of Nicodemus. But it's, it's kind of taken us up a little bit. And Jesus reflecting on salvation. This is Big picture on why Jesus was sent. Verse 16, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to see four reasons why Jesus was sent to us. Um, Here at Christmas time, it couldn't be any more applicable. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the, dark, into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. All right, so we're talking about reasons why Jesus came. And what I want to do here is is take that section, 16 through 21, and kind of work backwards. Uh, we're gonna, so we'll start it at 19 through, tw- through 21, and we'll work ourselves backwards, 18 through 21, and we'll work ourselves backwards. And you'll, what we're going to do as we see this, we'll kind of see, the, I, would, I would say, the gospel. We'll see from the beginning to the end, what is the good news? Now, for those that are believers, this is, this is a, a great opportunity for us all to hear the gospel again. Hearing the gospel again should never be something that you go tired of. For those of you that maybe don't know Christ, you're, you're investigating Jesus, you're going to hear what is the absolute best news of the world. More so than that, this is exactly why people celebrate Christmas. It's not Santa Claus, it's not the soldiers, it's not elves, it's not presents, it's not anything. Those things are nice, but that's not why we celebrate Christmas. This right here, what you're going to hear, and the, the kind of steps of what you're going to hear of why Jesus came, this is why we celebrate Christmas. So starting at verses 18 through 20, through 20 as we just read, the first reason Jesus was sent is, is number one, Jesus was sent to expose that we are sinners and love darkness. I reference John 15 because Jesus was revealing to them that they were sinners, but it's, it's said even more 
uh, explicit here in this particular text. You can see it in verse uh, 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Here it is. Lest his deeds, this is his sinful deeds, um, should be exposed. So Jesus was sent to expose to us that we are sinners and love darkness. Jesus was sent to expose to us that we are sinners and love darkness. So there's some truths that we need to see in these particular verses in uh, 18 through 21 that, that cut, these, these truths cut to our heart and show to us that we love darkness. So number one reason is that Jesus was sent to expose that we, that we are sinners and love darkness. Inside, number one, there's, there's six things I want you to see. The six cutting truths that reveal some things about our heart. At the end of verse 19, it says that our works are evil. In verse 20, it says that we do wicked things. In verse 19, it says, um, and people love the darkness because their, their deeds were evil for everyone who does wicked things. The first truth we need to see that as Christ is exposing the fact that we are sinners, it means for those that are outside of Jesus, before, before any of us came to Christ, what's true then is the way that we live is that we live as people who have evil deeds and do wicked things. Piper, as he's looking at this, commentates, comment, uh, says this, we're all sinners who feel and think and do things that are not in sync with the infinite worth and beauty of God. That's what evil is. So, Whenever you think about what does it mean to do evil things, what does it mean to do things that are, are, are wicked, the most wicked part of it is not necessarily the negative part of the act. It's instead what we should be doing, which is upholding the infinite worth and beauty of God. And those who are not in Christ don't think about that. That's what is so evil about it, is that we don't uphold the infinite value and worthy, worthiness of God. The next thing that we see is not only is their works are evil, I'm still under number one, by the way, six kind of truths under here of number one, is that they don't want their deeds to be exposed. The first cutting truth is that we do evil deeds. The second cutting truth is that we don't want our deeds to be exposed. In verse 20, it says, lest, the, our, lest uh, our deeds should be exposed. Every one of us has a deep desire to keep hidden these things. That's not... That's not um, Something that just a few of you feel. That's something that every single one of us feels. None of us wants to be found out, if you will, about these evil deeds. So what do we do? Verse 20, so they love darkness where there will be no exposure for sin. The, sixth, the third cutting truth is that we love darkness. Outside of Christ, we love darkness. If you look at the middle of verse 20, it says... They don't come to the light. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. We, we, we stay in darkness because we love darkness rather than light outside of Christ. This is how all of us will live. We need to be sure that we're not confusing public and light here. As we're, as we're looking at this, these cutting truths, I want to make sure that we don't confuse that. Just because your sin might be done publicly doesn't still mean that it's not still done in darkness. Here's what I mean. Um, there is an environment that sinners can create where sin is welcome and sin is done there by many people. So it's done publicly by many people, but it's still done in darkness. Light hasn't come and shone on the, the public nature of that sin. So just because some, there's a big group of people that's doing it together 
does not mean that it's still not in darkness. It can absolutely still be in darkness. So we're not just talking about individual sin that I want to hide from everybody. We, we, we could be talking about a large group of people that all partake in sin together. And we would think, oh, that's definitely being exposed. It's in the light. It's not in the light. It's absolutely in the darkness because all of them have created an environment where all the people are so numb to sin, they don't see it as sinful and they remain in darkness. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 28 and 31, um, being described by Paul happening, where you say, and since they do not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malicious. They're full of envy, strife, murder, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They do not know God's righteous decree that though they do not know God's righteous decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here we have groups of people living in darkness, practicing sin together, And this is not in the light. This is as a group in darkness. So we want to make sure that we don't confuse um, public and light. Just because something is in light doesn't mean, or just because something is done uh, sinfully in public doesn't mean it's necessarily done in the light still. Sin can be so ugly and so monstrous and so hideous that it will surround itself with darkness continually. And it will surround itself with people who, who give um, a-okay to that particular sin and say it's okay. So I'm saying, don't hi- I'm begging of you, don't hide in darkness, either privately or publicly. Don't hide in darkness with just a select few. Instead, Jesus is beckoning you. He's begging you to step forward into the light, which, by the way, the, it's just a metaphor. Stepping into the light is just a metaphor. He's asking you to step into him which is a whole separate way to say it, which makes it, instead of a scary thing, an extremely positive thing. So we have sin in darkness, and he says, step into the light, which is just a metaphor of saying, step into Jesus. So that should not be scary. That's actually very safe, very safe to step into the light, which I'm stepping ahead of myself, so hold on. Um, the fourth cutting truth is it says that we hate the light because that's where sin gets exposed. Exposed. Everyone that does evil things, we hate the light. And so, therefore, the middle of verse 20 tells us that uh, they don't come to the light. The next truth is, <clears throat> for those that are outside of Christ, they don't come to the light. They hate it, and not only do they hate it, they stay there. They don't come into the light. And last thing is in verse 18, which I want you to see. If this, these first five truths remain... The sixth truth is, I think, one of the most cutting truths. It says in verse 18, whoever believes in him does not condemn, but here it is, but whoever does not believe, it doesn't say that they are condemned now. It says that they're condemned already. So the sinfulness which we all participate in is not something that happens necessarily once we go into darkness. We're already born in darkness, and we're already condemned already. So Christ Jesus, as he's come, is exposing or shedding light on the fact that we have already self-condemned ourselves because we have willingly already chosen sin. 
because we're all born in the line of Adam, we've all self-condemned ourselves by willingly, every single one of us willingly chose to sin. And so what we need then is the light to come and expose that for us and show us. Or the result is, as it says in verse 18, we're already condemned. We're already condemned. This refutes the idea then that someone can be a sincere person and follow any other religion besides Jesus and receive eternal life. It simply will not happen. Everyone outside of Christ is already condemned. They're already condemned. I want to be clear here. Jesus was not sent to condemn you. You're already condemned. Jesus was not sent to condemn you. I condemned myself. You condemned yourself. Jesus was not sent to condemn you. He was sent to expose your sin, which is one of the most gracious things he could do. He was not sent to condemn. As it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, and yet he was sent to expose our sin, and the exposing of our sin actually offers us life, not condemnation. The condemnation that comes then is to people who do not trust in Jesus, and that is a self-condemnation for rejecting Jesus. Having our sin exposed is absolutely painful. There's no question about it. Anytime after we've lived in darkness, uh, let me give you an example. Um, Recently, if you've seen the news at all, uh, and perhaps you're a serial podcast listener and you've gone on to season two. We, I don't even know what happened to Syed Adner or whatever his name was, but we're in verse two now, we're, or season two, we're talking about Bo Bergdahl. But whenever the, the videos first came out about Bo Bergdahl, they, they brought him out of a truck, and when they opened up the truck, and he's walking out there, and it, it goes off, it shows him like this. He's like, he's like this right here, and he's all the time rubbing his eyes. The reason why, if you listen to the very first podcast, is because for five years, he had been sitting in a dark room for five years, and his eyes had never worked before. And so as soon as he came out, everything was ultra, ultra bright to him. And so in the same way, that can be very scary. If you've lived in darkness for this long and all of a sudden you're being ushered out into the light, it can be very scary. It can be traumatic. It can be quite an experience. Having our sin can be exposed. uh, Having our sin exposed can be a very painful thing. And usually, I would say, most of the time, we don't want it. We want to keep it hidden. And that's the absolute worst thing we can do is keep it, I would say, in fact, keeping it hidden kills us. It kills us. Now, what do I mean? Do I mean, so you need to stand up right now and proclaim to everyone in the room what you've done? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you need to step into the light, which is Christ. Therefore, that's, what, that's the moment where we say, Jesus, these are my sins. Jesus, I absolutely need you. Jesus, I confess my need for you to forgive me. So it's, it's painful perhaps, but we need to see the light or Christ as good and precious, not terrible, not terrible, which leads us into our second part. Now there's going to be some overlap language in, in number one and two, but at this point I, I don't want us to focus um, on the exposing of sin part, which will be in the sentence, but I want us to spoke, focus on the light part and see it as positive. So the second reason that Jesus came is this. The second reason is Jesus was sent to be the light that exposes our sin. So the first reason he, ca- he came was to expose that we're sinners and that expose the fact that we love darkness. But the second reason 
that he came was to be the light that exposes our sin. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In him is no darkness at all. I, uh, I've got many children and one of them, um, he's seven. One day we're riding down the road and he's just staring at the sun. I mean staring at it and he's like, my eyes are killing me. And I'm like, stop looking at the sun. And he says, which I have no idea, I'm not looking at it, it's looking at me. And we got a long way to go here with this. Um, but the idea is this. When you stare at the sun, you'll realize in the sun is no darkness at all. And it is, it is just a paling in comparison in regard to light compared to God the Father. Compared to God. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Meaning he has no sin. There is nothing evil about him. He is absolute perfect perfection. So when we're talking about Jesus was sent to be the light, we're talking about perfection being brought to us. John 1, 9 talks about Jesus. In this particular book we're in, you know, a page over, it says, the true light, which is Jesus, which enlightens everyone, has come into the world. So we're talking about the light here. And as we're talking about the light, John Piper uh, comment, comments saying, Jesus is digging into our souls and explaining why some believe and some don't. He is describing the kind of judgment that, that does happen when light comes into the world. And it turns out that those who are condemned in this judgment are condemned by what they love and hate. He says, but when Christ, the light of the world, begins to shine in a person's life, it must either break him or her and lead him or her to repentance and faith or drive them further into the darkness. So the light coming is sent to expose us as sinners. And we are going to respond in one of two ways. We are going to see it as, oh, this is precious. This is a good thing. And we're going to walk into the light. By the way, which I've said, means walk into Jesus, the safest place that you could go. Or you'll retreat even further, back into darkness. We've got two ways to think about this, and I've already kind of hinted at it when we talk about coming into the light. The first one is where I think most of us kind of on our surface level think about it. Not saying it's wrong, but just kind of the first step. When we think about coming to the light, stepping to the light, we think about having our sin that's been exposed to us kind of revealed to our minds and hearts and realizing that we've got to do something with it. And this is a scary thing to step into the light. And it sounds almost like a negative thing. But if you keep going to make this stepping into the light sound positive, we don't need to think of it as only exposing sin, but we need to remember that since Jesus is the light, stepping into the light is stepping into Jesus. It means stepping into mercy. It means stepping into grace. It means stepping into forgiveness. So here we come with our sinfulness. Stepping into light doesn't sound so bad if we're stepping into mercy, stepping into forgiveness, stepping into grace, stepping into love, stepping into eternal life. This is what it means to step into the light. Sure, your sin's exposed, but that compared to stepping into love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, eternal life, if I'm going to weigh the two, this wins every time. I think that those things overpower the negative of having our sin exposed every day, all day long. 
So why wouldn't everyone then come to Jesus? Why wouldn't everyone step into the light? The human heart can keep us from responding to Christ. The human heart can lie to us. This is, this is why our human heart lies to us. The human heart can convince us that we still want bondage instead of freedom. The human heart can persuade us that our personal desires of sin are what we really love rather than the manifold beauty of Christ, which is supremely lovable. He can persuade us. Our minds can persuade us of this. The human heart can be quite deceiving. So I'm begging you here. If you're going to weigh who you would trust between your own heart, which I think we can all admit, our heart has deceived us. Our heart has led us astray. Or Jesus, who is absolute truth, This is what he's telling us as we look at this particular text. He's telling you that he is absolute truth. That's the whole point of calling him light. Jesus is truth. That we need to step into truth and trust truth, not our sinful hearts. This shows us then that the only difference then between a believer and an unbeliever is that um, there's not really much except for they're both sinners and the believer in Jesus has by God's grace trusted Christ and not his own heart, by God's grace done that, not on his own volition, and humbly thrown himself into the precious light where he says, I have an absolute need for Jesus. Because finally, as my sin's been exposed, I say yes to that. Yes to mercy. Yes to forgiveness. Yes to eternal life. Yes to peace. Yes to love. Light, even though it hurts at first my eyes, it's not a horrible thing. It's the most precious thing I can do. Unbelief then, remaining in unbelief is our fault. But stepping out into belief is God's gift to us. The light is God's gift. So as we've talked about the light here, the exposing of our sin, I want us to see the light is not, I don't ever want us to think of light exposing darkness as a bad thing. It's always the most positive thing because it's just a metaphor for Christ. And it's just saying, Step into Christ. Step into the forgiveness and mercy and eternal life that he offers. So that's the second reason why he was sent. He was sent to expose sin, but he was sent to be the light that exposes sin. Here's the third one. We're going to work ourselves back up to John 3.16 now. The most famous quoted verse in the Bible. The third reason Jesus was sent is even though we hate God outside of our relationship with Christ, he loves us. Think about that. Think about someone in your life that perhaps uh, you have never given reason to love. You have perhaps, maybe you haven't acted with hatred towards them, but almost every act you've ever given to them has been condescending, negativity, perhaps uh, hate-filled actions towards them. And yet, they still come with you and come at you and continually pursue you with love. This is, in some way, how to describe our relationship with God. Outside of Christ, all we have done, all we have done is acted with hatred towards Him. And yet, (laughs) He continually pursues us with love. So, John 3.16, though it's absolutely... um, maybe second nature 
to most of you, the first line should stun us. It should absolutely floor us. For God so loved the world. Let's try to, let's try to put it into perspective here. Um, Calvin says, Christ opens up with the very first cause, as it were, the source of all of our salvation. He does so that no doubt might remain, for our minds cannot find calm repose until we have arrived at the unmerited love of God. It's unmerited. None of us earned it. He has freely, freely given it to us. You, you haven't earned one drop of love towards him. As a matter of fact, you've gone the other direction of trying to earn it, and yet he's given it to you. Let, let's try to even make this sentence even more great. For God so loved the world. This is in a particular uh, verb tense called the aorist, which you don't really need to know, but it just means uh, God's love in action. It means when we're talking about God's love, so the, the expansiveness, vastness of this love, it's God's love in action, reaching back all the way into eternity past and then coming forward into its absolute glorious um, fruition with absolute richness and truth and tenderness and majesty and being poured out onto you at the cross for display. So God so loved the world. This is a striking statement, a striking statement to people who are reading in the first century. Everything in the Old Testament when it talks about God's love, was only directed straight towards just the people of God. As you read the Old Testament over and over, God loved his people. God loved the Israelites. God loved the Jewish people. So let's take another read at it and let it strike us with the full weight. Here, and this is only Christianity does this. This is an astounding statement. This is a distinctly Christian idea. It's no longer, God only loves his people. God so loved the world. I mean, this is, this is an astounding statement as the first century reader reads this and sees that he's opening up with love, that is talking about this full weight and measure of the absolute glorious fruition of all the richness and truth and tenderness and mercy being poured out to us on display at Christ. And not only is it just for his people, but it's opened up to every single person that's created in the image of God and saying God so loved the world that he gave. So we got to see here, for God so loved the world, those next three words are absolutely crucial, that he gave. So this love is action-oriented. It's action-oriented. This is, this is not nebulous feeling love that does nothing. I mean, I can tell Christy all the time, I love you, I love you, I love you. But she wants me to back it up with some action. We're all that way. Back that up, bud. Do this, do this, do this. I'm drowning over here. There's kids everywhere, <laughs> right? I like for you to show me that. We're all that way. So God isn't treating us that way. God so loved the world that he gave love and action. It's not just, I love you. There it is. I'm not going to do anything for you. It's God so loved that he gave. Now, it wasn't that he gave us something 
not so precious to him, but maybe awesome to us. He gave his only son. He gave his only son. Sometimes I watch my kids play or watch them walk around the house. I just stare at them and I think, is it possible for me to love this child any more than I do as they walk around and do goofy stuff? And I, yes, it is possible. And the only one that does it perfectly is Jesus. The only one that does it perfectly is God the Father towards his son. I will never love my children the way God the Father loves Jesus. Never. Never even come close. And that's who he gave. That's who he gave. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says it this way. But God shows or demonstrates his love to feel all the, all the power of that love coming. God demonstrates his love for us, to us, in that while we were still sinners, enemies, haters, devil worshipers, as Ephesians 1 says, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, of him, Christ died for us. This is, this is remarkable. Jesus was sent to show to us that even though we hate God, he loves us. Jesus was sent to be the ultimate display of the deepest affection that God the Father could ever have on display for us. You want to know what real love is. If anyone is ever looking for a picture of what is the absolute most perfect way I can describe love, you point them to the cross. There is no better display in human terms and human understanding than someone looking at the cross and looking at God sending his son who lived perfectly, who died for wretched people like us. That's the best place. And without that love, we would surely perish. We would surely perish. So the third thing is this. God so loved us that he gave us a gift. He gave us a gift. It's the reason why we give gifts at Christmas. is to try in some semblance of a way, to do what the Lord did by giving us a gift. Some of you have been, maybe in life, beat down, and you perhaps have convinced yourself that love like this, given to you, surely had to be like coerced out of God to give it to you. There's, I am so unlovely that he didn't just do this because he had, like, someone forced God's hand here for him to love me. I, I can see how he loves them and them and them, but not, not me. I want you to hear this. God is love, and he's loved so much that he gave his only son to you. Not out of coercion. Not because he just felt bad for you. Because he is love. There isn't one of us here that he hasn't shown us an amazing amount of love to. And it's not because he had to. It's because he wanted to. 
And it wasn't a sentimental, vague, feeling love. Instead, it was love that costs what was most dear to him. And he gave you this gift. He called it light. Called him light. And the gift is an exposing of who you are so that you would see who you are. Which is a gift. I know it sounds scary, but it's a gift that you would see who we are as sinners and put our trust in him. To what purpose? To what purpose has he loved us? Well, it's in the text. I know you can guess. Here's the fourth reason Jesus was sent. Not just to expose sin, but something happens. Jesus was sent to save the world and give us eternal life. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Here it is, that whoever believes should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Jesus was sent to save us and give us eternal life. Verse 17, um, the negative statement, then the positive statement. That's the kind of the sequence of the verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through the world he might be saved through him. So this saved language is eternal life. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We have eternal life. God has sent to us his Son, which was deeply costly for him, but infinitely beneficial to us because we receive eternal life. And here's the amazing part. For us, it's absolutely free. This is probably the most astounding part of it all at great cost to himself extends to us eternal life that's absolutely free don't miss the whosoever that whosoever believes even calvin says the whosoever jesus uses this term to indiscriminately invite all to partake of life and to cut off every single excuse from any unbeliever that they're not invited. That's Calvin. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but you'll know it one day maybe. The whosoever is really whosoever. Indiscriminately throwing out to everyone in this room and everybody in the world. Whoever comes receives life, eternal life. We receive eternal life. This is Pertaining to the future age, the realm of glory, the New Testament commentary says, it becomes the possession then of every believer. The future age, the realm of glory becomes the possession of every believer here and now and never ending. Never ending. I mean, just imagine, never ending. We can't even comprehend it. We are so entrenched in and all we've ever lived in is death. Death. And here we're saying Eternal life, everlasting life. It's not technically eternal, it's everlasting. Because we don't go back to eternity past. So the life that we're being given here then is salvation. And we're receiving love and peace and joy. Eternal love, eternal peace, and eternal joy. Or everlasting love, everlasting peace, and everlasting joy. That's what 
Christ was sent was to save us and give us eternal or everlasting life. So this amazing gift was given to you by Christ whom was sent. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. In order to receive eternal life, you have to believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him. Verse 16 and 17 says it a few times. Whoever believes. Verse 17. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That's verse 17. I meant to read verse 17. For God did not send his own son in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So here we see that belief is absolutely necessary. So as we're concluding here, what I want to do is this. I want to implore everyone here to believe. Jesus has been sent to us to expose sin and die for sin. And if you would step into the light and trust Christ, this belief is active trust that I'm stepping out and saying, yes, you show me my sin, therefore I know that I need forgiveness. So as I step out, Lord, forgive me for my sin. You you have clearly shown me that I have it. I'm not going to retreat in darkness and stay in it. Instead, I'm going to step into Christ and I'm going to say, yes, I need forgiveness. I trust you that your death should have been mine. And so God, I trust you. I ask for forgiveness for my sin and I want your life to be given to me. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for being my savior. But what's absolutely crucial is that we must believe. We must actively right now have present and continual trust or belief or believing in him. That's what it means. That's all of these things that we've read and seen thus far is all pushing us, driving us, taking us to a moment of saying, stepping into light means believing. So if you're here for the first time or you're here today and you don't know Christ or you've been been investigating, what Jesus is saying to you right now is step into the light and receive eternal life by believing in him. You're actually going to see a story of someone who trusted Christ, who stepped into the light just for Four days ago, whenever Wednesday was, if that was five, it was five. It was four, something, it was this past Wednesday. I was there, I saw it. I saw spiritually, I saw physically what happened spiritually, a stepping into the light, a belief right there at the moment where they were transferred from the domain of darkness, as Colossians 1 says, and ushered into the kingdom of his son whom he loves by belief. Belief given as a gift from God. So he's calling you to believe. And for those that are in Christ, which might be the majority of you in here, this is not just a a, a sermon for unbelievers to get saved. This is for you to presently, continually trust Christ and what he's done. Remember that you have been called into light. And so you hate darkness now. You don't live in darkness now. You're not satisfied with darkness. You're not satisfied with sin. If you've trusted Christ, you have stepped 
into the light. Which means you don't ever, ever find yourself continually living in sin and say, this is okay. So at this time of the year, I think it's easy for us to forget why we celebrate Christmas. So I want to read a Christmas text for you that summarizes this particular verse. This is an angel appearing to Joseph, Jesus' father Joseph, about his wife Mary who's pregnant, um, and he's telling him this. She will bear, give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Yeshua. In the Old Testament, Joshua. It means the Lord saves. You will give birth to a son, and his name is the Lord saves. For he will save his people from their sins. How? We just saw how. Because he's the light, and he exposes their sin. And we step into the light. We step into mercy. We step into forgiveness. Because the Lord has given us this great gift of faith. We step in and we trust him. And what happens? We believe and we receive eternal life. God gave us his son. And he gives us the faith to embrace his son. And he gives us everlasting life as a reward for the exercise of faith. So he receives the glory forever and ever and ever. So here's how we're going to respond. We're going to see in just a second a a two-minute or so video of someone being baptized. Um, And then we're going to baptize Tegan. And then after that, we're going to have a pretty extraordinary time of celebration. So this isn't a, uh, oh, that's great. This is like, we're getting it done loud. We're going after it loud. And then as soon as the baptism's over, we're all going to stand and we're going to give glory to Christ because not only has he saved someone just a few days ago when we've seen a symbolic demonstration of what's happened, but more than that, he's done it in your own hearts. Every single one of us have received this gift of Christ that are, that are, that are Christians. And we're going to celebrate and we're going to worship and we're going to give him glory for it. And for those of you that don't know Christ, talk to the person you came with or talk to me afterwards. We want to tell you how you can know Christ and have eternal life. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll have a video and then we'll baptize Tegan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for this unbelievable gospel that you were sent. You were sent to forgive. You were sent to save. You were sent to expose our sin. You were sent to die. You were sent to call us into light and you were sent to give us eternal life. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.